With each day of the war in Ukraine, the human toll and economic burden are rising rapidly. So, what is the way out of this dilemma? I sat down with Jeffrey Sachs, Columbia University's world-renowned economics professor and best-selling author, to talk about the political and economic ramifications of this conflict and what a peace settlement might look like. I'm Ali Aslan, and this is One on One. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you so much for being on the program. Wonderful to be with you, thank you. Jeff, uh, the war uh, in Ukraine is in its second month now, and uh, obviously, uh, barring troops on the ground, of course, the most effective weapon, quote-unquote, that the Western states have against Russia are sanctions. Um, you are a very, very known, internationally recognized and renowned economist. Are the sanctions actually having an impact? Are they working? Well, the sanctions uh, definitely hurt Russia, but I would add two more points. They hurt the whole world. Uh, therefore, they really have a big boomerang effect. And second, even though they definitely hurt the Russian economy, I don't think that they work politically. I don't think that they really change the direction of uh, the war or the diplomacy in, in uh, any real definitive sense. The U.S. has uh, used very, very harsh sanctions against many countries without uh, too much political outcome. So bottom line, yes, they hurt, but they're hurting everybody. And I don't think that they're really determining the direction of uh, war and peace. So clearly they won't cha change or shape uh, this, this war. They won't break Russia and they won't break uh, uh, Putin and the Kremlin. That's what I'm hearing. I'm a skeptic, of course. Uh, in the U.S., uh, very many people disagree with me. But I've been through uh, watching sanctions regimes closely for a long time. We put incredibly harsh sanctions uh, on Venezuela. Uh, Mr. Maduro is still there. In fact, we're running to him now to pump more oil. So count me as a skeptic uh, on this approach. It is the lead uh, U.S. approach with one other major prong, uh, and not to uh, uh, understate the other prong, which is sending more uh, and heavier weaponry to Ukraine, uh, which is going to cause uh, more destruction, more loss of lives, and uh, more escalation of the war. Would you even say that the sanctions are counterproductive? You said they are hurting Russia, but they're hurting us all. They're hurting the rest of the world as well. Are, are sanctions counterproductive in this particular case? I think that if one has sanctions without a diplomatic path, they're basically useless, very harmful. Uh, they do a lot of instability. But unless there is a diplomatic uh, part to this, I don't see how they can possibly uh, have the uh, effects that uh, the U.S. government is seeking. So one could imagine if we had very active negotiations underway and one used sanctions as uh, part of, uh, if I could put it this way, the broader negotiating uh, aspect of uh, getting to an agreement, you could imagine that <laughs> that might work. But what I fear right now is that we don't really have the diplomatic track. I don't think the United States believes in it or wants it. And so just the sanctions regime strikes me as a, a bit of an illusion. Now, again, 
Uh, it's a little concerning to me. Uh, my friends, colleagues, uh, former students, others uh, in the U.S. administration are pretty gung-ho about the ability of sanctions to change the direction of the conflict. Uh, so my skepticism is not the mainstream in the U.S., but it is uh, built on a lot of uh, close observation and experience, I would say. So sanctions without the necessary diplomatic uh, framework and efforts are not uh, useful, uh, you say. But we don't really say a diplomatic outreach, do we? There are no negotiations, as, as far as I'm concerned, and as, we, as far as we know, that are taking place uh, at the moment. Quite on the contrary, Ukraine President Zelensky keeps saying that Ukraine won't give in, that uh, they are optimistic, that they will win the war, that they will prevail. Um, is that a dangerous tactic? It's hard to even understand what the real thinking is. Uh, I know the U.S. approach to war, which is that if it's on other countries' soil, let it go on indefinitely. Uh, you know, the United States first uh, sent in uh, the Central Intelligence Agency into Afghanistan in 1979. It was more than 40 years later that the United States finally left that country. Uh, the United States uh, went in to overthrow Assad in 2011. We're still uh, in uh, Syria. Uh, the United States is stuck in many other places that have been devastated by perpetual war. And I fear that Ukraine is, uh, in a way, being talked into a perpetual war rather than saying to both sides. And I think this is what President Erdogan was really trying to do saying to both sides, what are your aims? Where is the common ground? How do we end this? Because personally, I don't believe in a win in this. I don't even see how one could think about a win against a, a country, Russia, that has uh, 1,600 active nuclear warheads and 6,000 total. What does a win mean, that, that Ukraine defeats uh, Putin, that he just says, well, I made a mistake, I, I go back home. Boy, what kind of strategy is that? It's no strategy. So the notion that we keep hearing, not only from Kiev, but Washington and other European capitals, that time is actually on the side of Ukraine is a, is, is a difficult, if not even dangerous waiver here, isn't it? When America says it, uh, I, I think it is profoundly cynical. Uh, time is uh, on the side of Ukraine in the sense of uh, let Ukraine fight a war against Putin for months or years. That seems to be what they have in mind. Uh, when you actually listen to the U.S. Uh, generals and security officials and talking heads now that are uh, the ones talking about this, they say, well, we don't really know what the end game is, but Putin, boy, is he finding out he doesn't have an army. Uh, he's humiliated. His head is exploding uh, by the latest development. That's what I heard today. <laughs> but what do they think is actually being accomplished? Uh, we're going to see more and more destruction, millions of people displaced. Putin is not going to be defeated, in my opinion, uh, not before he would create mass devastation, and Russia certainly has the capacity to do that. The Americans think, well, we are using the sanctions to cause his war machine to grind to a halt. 
wow, that is also an extraordinary idea. Then the U.S. says, yes, it's true, China uh, is supporting Russia, but we're going to double down the pressure on China. Wow, uh, how are you going to do that? Uh, well, then uh, there are the other countries, uh, India and, and most of the developing countries. Well, we're going to press them. And uh, there is this uh, kind of bravado. Uh, it is an American arrogance, in my opinion, uh, that says, yes, it's true. The, the countries uh, that are putting on the sanctions are basically the European Union and the United States combined the countries with the sanctions constitute 15% of the world population. The other 85% says, what are you doing? You know, this is uh, hurting everybody. But the U.S. says, well, we have the muscle and the pressure so that we'll make sure this applies for the whole world and cause a war machine to grind to a halt. That's the theory. Doesn't sound very convincing to me. American quote-unquote arrogance aside, uh, this uh, conflict also has a uh, very tangible side effect in Europe. We see the militarization of Europe. Germany, a traditionally pacifist-minded country, has announced uh, uh, an increase in 100 billion euros in their war, rather, military budget. And Finland and Sweden are now seriously considering becoming members of NATO. What do you make of that? I think it's all very dangerous. You know, I was uh, born in 1954, uh, nine years after the end of World War II. The idea that I would see in my lifetime uh, cheering uh, for the remilitarization of Germany strikes me as uh, ironic, uh, to use a profound understatement. Uh, what a uh, misdirection, uh, what a, a wrong step for Finland and Sweden. You know, I, I, uh, I edit each year uh, two reports, one on sustainable development and one on world happiness based on survey data. And Finland, as a neutral country, uh, has been the happiest uh, and ranking the highest in sustainable development of the whole world. So they are doing just fine, have done just fine as a neutral country. Now this rush to join NATO will be extraordinarily threatening to Russia. Uh, Russia has said, well, we'll move our nuclear weapons uh, to the Nordic border. Uh, we will see the world quickly divide even more dangerously into camps. One can't say it's a cold war. It is, it's a hot war. It's a proxy war already between NATO and, uh, and uh, Russia, or between the United States and Russia. We're just escalating. And people are not thinking, because none of this has a decent outcome. The only decent outcome is negotiation. And the irony of all of this is that what Putin put on the table in 2021, the basic proposition that NATO should not enlarge to Ukraine, was actually right, not just as a concession to Putin, but absolutely right prudentially, because the last thing this world needed was the U.S. alliance and U.S. weaponry right up against Russia's border. And we didn't have the self-control to realize, don't push all the way to Russia's border. If you know Russian history, it's not a good idea.
if you heard what Putin was saying in 2021, it was not a good idea. If you heard, as I did, what Russians were saying back to 1990, because I was an advisor to Gorbachev and then an advisor to Yeltsin, back in 1990, more than 30 years ago, they were saying the same thing. Unfortunately, the United States is also an expansionist power, and the uh, U.S. cannot hear the idea that another country would say, don't expand to our border. The U.S. cannot process such an idea. That seems like a concession or a, a threat, and the U.S. ignored Putin's warnings. So we still know what a negotiated outcome could look like, but they're not trying. You're very clear about the fact that peace uh, must be the central aim here, that negotiations, that diplomacy is needed, and that, that it's really time to talk peace terms with uh, Russia. How concretely uh, do you think this is going to play out? What would peace look like? What would a reasonable peace settlement look like, sustainable, that is acceptable to both sides and to both parties? Interestingly, Russia put its uh, war aims, you could say its peace terms, on the table in early March. It said that there are three issues. One is Ukraine's neutrality. The second is that Crimea is a permanent part of Russia. And the third is that the Donbas uh, has independence. Well, I don't think that uh, Ukraine or the world has to say those are, uh, <laughs> those are uh, all acceptable in that way. You know, peace could be reached by finding solutions for each of those three points. First, Ukraine's neutrality is actually a good idea. Again, it's not a concession uh, to, uh, to, to Putin. It's just the right idea. We don't need a world in which the U.S. military alliance is right up against Russia. It makes the world extraordinarily dangerous. Second, de facto, Crimea is going to stay as part of Russia. Uh, and uh, this is a history that goes back centuries, but that is the Black Sea naval base. And it's, I don't see that negotiable. With the Donbass, it's uh, much more complex and subtle. I don't think it's the frontline issue of this war, or it shouldn't have to be, but some kind of autonomy was already agreed back seven years ago in the Minsk agreements. It's clear that it was Ukraine that did not implement the Minsk agreements because Ukraine said, well, we agreed to that uh, under uh, gunpoint. You know, the truth is uh, when diplomatic agreements are reached, there's a responsibility to carry them out. They weren't carried out. There is no, there was no solution to the Donbass. I don't think the Donbass should become new statelets or part of Russia or independent, because I don't believe in seizing uh, land by uh, military conquest in a world of the UN Charter. But I do believe that some kind of autonomy is feasible. And this is the nitty gritty of what should be discussed at the negotiating table. But you know, with these points raised, the United States has never, to my knowledge, publicly said, we support negotiations. I don't know of one time, I know of several times that our top diplomats have said, we don't believe the negotiations will go anywhere, trying to curse them, uh, in effect. I, I know, we all know what President Biden said, which is, well, 
Putin must go. That's uh, actually not the grounds for a negotiated outcome. So I don't know how far away the parties would be if the direction from the whole world were to both sides breach an agreement, because this is dangerous for the entire world, breach an agreement that respects Ukraine's sovereignty, that eliminates the troops, Russian troops from Ukraine, that makes Ukraine a neutral country, and that addresses other issues like the politics of the eastern Ukrainian regions. <laughs> but that's not beyond us. That's the kind of work of diplomacy that is within reach. But we're not even talking about it right now. You're quite critical of the role that the United States is playing here. As a matter of fact, you wrote a best-selling book about American exceptionalism and your critique of that. Is this conflict in Ukraine, is the war in Ukraine a first sign, if you will, of a global shift towards a new world order in which America is no longer the sole superpower? We're already seeing China agrees with Russia's opposition to NATO enlargement. India is, is uh, at least staying neutral uh, on, on the sidelines. The America is not having its way as it used to have. Is that a correct assessment? If you listen to the U.S. media, boy, we're winning. Uh, I just uh, happened to listen to uh, U.S. media in, in the past couple of hours. I was shocked. It was all generals and admirals and uh, military industrial complex people, CIA, former CIA agents and so forth. They think we're winning. I, I don't see it that way. Uh, I do see uh, the U.S. being involved uh, with the world in the view that the U.S. is still the world's superpower that can even tell China what to do. But my sense, uh, as someone who spends most of my time outside of the United States uh, traveling around the world uh, for uh, the U.N. or international economics, uh, is that the rest of the world is looking at this and saying, you know, we don't agree with being dictated to this way. We don't like sanctions that are raising our food prices, uh, that are uh, making it uh, difficult for the poor in our country to survive. Uh, we see the international financial situation darkening because at the same time the inflation is leading the Federal Reserve, which uh, is the keeper of uh, the world's uh, dominant currency, to raise interest rates significantly. This is going to be a major macroeconomic challenge. Now, the U.S. is saying, well, we can press China, we can press India, we can keep our alliances. To my mind, it's exactly what you said. We're at a crossroads. I think the U.S. has calibrated wrong. In any event, my uh, desired world is not a world of U.S. hegemony. My desired world is a multipolar world that operates under the U.N. charter. So I'm not rooting for U.S. hegemony. I'm rooting for a multipolar world that talks to each other, in which the U.N. Security Council can actually operate properly, and in which the major powers aren't at each other's throats or on each other's borders with the military alliances and, and heavy weaponry. You are a world-renowned economist and have already stated throughout this interview as well that uh, this war is affecting 
the world economy in a very negative way. High inflation, you've already mentioned that food security is at risk. Energy security in many countries is at risk. And when it comes to energy, of course, Europe is trying to reduce its dependency on Russian energy supplies. The EU spends as much as one billion US dollars per day on Russian oil, gas and coal. Many people are saying this is exactly the money that is helping to fund the Russian war machinery. Um, in a very twisted and ironic way, perhaps the only silver lining of this war. Do you think that this conflict will speed up the green transition that Europe and the world has set out to do at COP26 and, and other uh, climate conferences? You, this is, I know it's a pet project of yours. This is uh, uh, a field of expertise that you have uh, been involved with in a very, very long time. Do you think that this war will have a positive effect at least when it comes to the green energy transition? It should, but it, it turns out wars uh, rarely help people to think uh, clearly. <laughs> On the one side, uh, obviously, uh, Europe's energy security would be enhanced by wind power, uh, solar energy, uh, a European uh, grid uh, that uh, connects uh, European uh, renewable energy. The world needs to move to that completely irrespective of the war, because uh, while it's more slow moving than a war, the climate change is absolutely devastating. And by the way, just uh, hundreds of people dying in floods uh, in the last few days in South Africa. And that's a kind of occurrence that we're seeing everywhere. I was uh, in uh, Malaysia last week, uh, and in Malaysia, they're having mega flooding uh, because of climate change as well. So we do need the energy transformation, for sure. Could this speed it up? In general, the energy transformation actually thrives on cooperation, not on individual country actions. Uh, what's happening right now in, in the US is, oh, great, we get to sell more natural gas uh, to, uh, to Europe. Uh, a lot of uh, people are talking about suspending projects on renewable energy, which are longer term, and making sure that the coal mines are operating and so on. I'm, I think you know, you're, you're putting your finger on something that could happen, uh, that uh, this could be a, a shock and a, a, a wake-up call. Again, my own experience in, in 40 years of international economics is that conflict basically turns us very short-term. Uh, and uh, very improvisational. And the real energy transformation requires uh, long global supply chains for batteries and uh, precious minerals. It requires major transboundary investments. It requires thinking, and war shuts down thinking. Uh, so I'm a little skeptical that this is actually going to have even that glimmer of positive effect. Now, certainly, when we're looking at the numbers since uh, COP26, they are backsliding uh, since COP26 with record coal consumption and emissions rising again, uh, pushing the goal uh, of emissions to net zero by 2050 at uh, risk. Uh, before we let you go, Jeff, uh, you've already stated what, in your opinion, should happen to end this war. Uh, in your opinion, and uh, based on the conversations that you're having uh, behind closed doors, what do you think will actually happen? 
Well, I'm still hoping that a group of uh, world leaders, uh, thinking people, uh, President Erdogan, uh, President Macron, uh, President Xi, uh, and others can say, look, this is extraordinarily dangerous, can say that to uh, Putin, can say it to, to Ukraine, can say it to the United States, can say what the track we're on is leading nowhere. There are no winners in this. I'm hoping that a group of world leaders, let's add uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, to the list, uh, can prevail that we really need to bring this to the negotiating table. All of the heroism, undoubted, the valor and all the rest, all the heavy weaponry, none of it's going to save Ukraine. All of it is going to endanger escalation. The sanctions are not going to change the course of this. So what we need are clear-headed political leaders that are able to say to the two sides, it's got to stop. And ironically, it can stop on terms close to what has already been stated. The core of this is Ukraine's neutrality. The core of this is Russia uh, withdrawing from Ukraine so that Ukraine has territorial integrity. The rest is details. And this is what we need to get to sooner rather than later. One of the oddest parts that I hear is, well, yes, Jeff, that's what it's going to come to. But there's a lot of fighting ahead before we get there. I don't accept that. It makes no sense to say, let's destroy uh, millions more lives. Uh, let's have thousands or tens of thousands dead in between. Let's destroy hundreds of billions of dollars of property. And then we'll get to what we see as absolutely achievable right now. That makes no sense. Let's get there uh, by the shortcut so that we can actually get peace and take away this unbelievable risk of escalation to a world conflict. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you very much indeed for being with us, for being on the program. Thank you so much. My, my honor and pleasure. Thank you.